Good morning, everybody. So settling in. The last morning of a retreat, sometimes it takes a, a few minutes to settle in. So I'll offer some end of retreat reflections, and then we'll sit together silently after that for however long we have left after I offer the reflections. And here we are. Coming to the end of our two week online at home, or at least at home for most of you, uh, Anapanasati Vipassana retreat. Soon to be moving out of ongoing formal intensive practice mode into what is actually will be a longer period of ongoing practice. Your life as your practice. Though for many of you may be quite likely still at home much of the time during this continuing COVID era, so to say, our possibility is that wherever we are, wherever we go, there's our practice. Maybe your home, as I've certainly heard from some of you, has become your temple, become your retreat center, become your monastery. Over these last two years, even, during this extended stay-at-home time, helping you to experience this as a gift, at least some of the time. This certainly has been my experience during much of the time here at home and in relationship to the land and the, the trees and the, the gardens that are all around my home, for which I'm very deeply grateful. And of course, with our, our soon to be moving out of retreat mode into daily life mode, there's certainly going to be some changes. One of the change, uh, changes that we'll experience in relationship to the pace of life, will be in relationship to the pace of life, at least outwardly as we enter into a more worldly life, 
life appears and feels like it moves considerably faster than it does in the midst of retreat life. And yet we're supported as we move into the larger world with certainly some more understanding from our two weeks in retreat of how quickly and incessantly things change within our own body and within our mind. How quickly and incessantly things change all around us, even in this slowed down pace of life in an online retreat. This understanding, this wisdom is really a great support and a great protection as we make this change from retreat practice into practice in the world. Reconnecting with a larger world in its day-to-dayness or moment-to-momentness in a more ongoing and consistent way than we have during our retreat time with this more fast-paced, these more fast-paced changes of a worldly life. And I'm sure each of you to varying degrees have had some taste of the impersonality of change. You've certainly tasted that we can't stop change. And that even though we might try, we can't hold on to anything. And maybe you've tasted how painful it is to try to hold on to something. As you've dedicated yourself to the cultivation of a clearly focused, concentrated mind grounded in mindfulness, and then moved your concentrated attention towards exploring the four domains of mindfulness in various ways over these past two weeks. I've heard from many of you that there's been a blossoming of clarity and relationship to your deepest goals and aspirations, along with the choices that you make regarding what to do or what not to do. And I know from you that this blossoming of clarity in relationship to your choices, the choices that you make, is maybe more intimately and maybe more clearly connected now to your relationship with other beings, along with more clarity regarding what's important and what's appropriate, what's wholesome, what's really, truly respectful and kind in relationship to every other form of life on this amazing planet that we all share. We've touched into the ultimate reality of our innate and totally pervasive interconnectedness with all forms of life as we all breathe together. And it makes a difference in how we choose and how we live our life overall. Each and all of these tastes, these understandings, are really a great support for each and all of us and have a very deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate in the world. There's a very beautiful piece that was written by the American astronaut, 
Russell Swikert some years ago regarding his experience in outer space. And I'd like to share this with you. And these are his words. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with a window looking out at a picture. There are no frames. There are no boundaries. You're really out there going 25,000 miles an hour, ripping through space, a vacuum, and there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery, with, with, with what you're seeing and the speed with which you know you're going. The contrast, the mix of these two things really comes through. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God or to have some special experience here that other people can't have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done that deserves this, that earned this. It's not a special thing for you you know very well at that moment. And it comes through to you so powerfully that you're a sensing element for humans. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time and you know all those people down there. They are like you, they are you. And somehow you represent them, that point out on the end and that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility and it's not just for yourself. The eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there, that's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. You're out on that forefront and you have to bring that back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. It tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. And so that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other life forms on that planet. Because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference and it's so precious. In retreat life, even in an at-home online retreat, life is pared down. A life of much more simplicity than most of us have when we're not in retreat mode. So this is another about to be change. You most likely have been engaging in a much more hour by hour and moment by moment scheduled life during this retreat than maybe you ordinarily do in your everyday ordinary life. You sit, you walk or stretch. You eat after some simple food preparation. You clean up after your meal in a simple way. 
Some of you may be having meals prepared for you. Maybe you clean up afterwards, maybe you don't. All of these activities being your yogi job. You sleep, however much. And you've spoken just a little on your practice meeting days and maybe also occasionally had some minimal word exchanges with some of the beings living in your household during these past two weeks. Life has been offered as a gift of relative simplicity over these last two weeks. And within this container of simplicity, you've been encouraged and supported to develop a depth and clarity of attention to connect mindfully with your beautiful breath. And you repeatedly connect with mindful attention to the cultivation of a clear, mindful connection and attention to your body. Your body within its myriad manifestations and your mind within its myriad manifestations. And to hold all of this within the heart of the matter, to hold all of these manifestations of body and mind within the energy of the overall caring connection of metta love. And maybe you've discovered even more deeply now that the great support of sila, the great support of living ethically, living respectfully, living harmlessly, is the ground and is totally intertwined with every facet and every, each and every unfolding experience in our practices of anapanasati and mindfulness-based insight practice, vipassana. And with this understanding, maybe you've also discovered even more deeply what brings suffering and what brings ease to your heart and mind and also to all other living beings. As we come to see and know this through our intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, how we use language, and it affects all of our actions. Seeing into our own mind and heart affects and informs the motivations behind the words and the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. Something you might consider doing in your daily life, and maybe some of you already do this, is the possibility of starting your day engaging in a morning chant of the refuges and the precepts, and maybe closing your day with the sharing of blessings chant. This can be a really beautiful and powerful aspect of 
encouraging the purification of our, our thoughts, our words, and, and our actions. There's a particular rendition of the precepts that was written by a woman named Stephanie Kaza, who spent many years living at the Green Gulch Zen Farm uh, in California that I'd like to share with you. And I wanna share it because it's particularly relevant to how we've been practicing during this retreat and also especially relevant in relationship to daily life and the larger world. And this is Stephanie Kaza's gift to us and to many other people. It's her rendition of the refuges and the precepts. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell in past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess anything or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. In relationship to the um, simplicity of life and retreat, I'd like to share a story with you that took place some years ago now at the Lama Foundation, which is about a 45 minutes north up in the mountains from where I live here in the town or on the south end of the town of Taos. Many years ago, Nanao Sakaki, who was a wandering Japanese poet, used to spend time up at the Lama Foundation. And he would show up at Lama with his small knapsack and a sleeping bag, and he would stay there for a few days. And then he would head out into the mountains with just this, nothing more than what he'd arrived with. A dear friend of mine who uh, was the coordinator at Lama during those years told me that one of the times when Nanao had come in to Lama from the mountains for a day or two, asked her and another friend if they would like to come out to his camp for dinner in a few days. Well, my friend was really, really delighted about this. This was something very special, something that had never, ever been offered before. So on the appointed day, 
my and time, um, my friend and the other invitee found their way out to Nanao's camping spot by following his careful directions. But when they got there, Nanao was there, but there was no food in sight for dinner. He told them not to bring anything with them, that it wouldn't be necessary, that he said there was plenty of food. Well, my friend thought maybe they'd made a mistake, that um, this was the wrong day. But Nanao was really delighted to see them and welcomed them very heartily. And then he said, well, now let's go out and look for dinner and find dinner. I was told by my friend that they walked and picked and dug various wild foods. And then they came back to Nanao's camp, built a fire and cooked what needed cooking. And she said they enjoyed an incredibly delicious dinner. And they finally understood, she said, how Nanao could go out into the mountains for days or sometimes weeks at a time with almost nothing and come back strong, healthy, and happy. A Dhamma student once told me that the simplicity in life in retreat had a very good taste, as she called it. We taste it, this good taste. And we take it with us, so to say. It wends its way into our life in many small ways and, and sometimes bigger ways. And as we know, of course, life outside of retreat can get quite complex at times. Our home and family life, our sangha, our community, our work life, which may be, for some of you, primarily online at this point, work life. And even to some degree, our social life during this pandemic time. And yet there certainly are ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. And often we do this little by little as our practice deepens in and outside of a retreat setting. We make choices in relationship to the work that we do. We make choices in the way that we spend time with family and friends and partners and community members. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We really do truly have the possibility of expanding and deepening this good taste that we take from the simplicity of retreat life. And of course, there are some complex responsibilities and commitments that we must honor and continue with throughout our regular life, our daily life. The taste of simplicity in retreat has the very beneficial effect of affecting and inspiring the way that we expend our energy, what we put our energy towards, how we use our energy. Even in the midst of complex activity and relationships and responsibilities. Concentration, vipassana, and metta practice helps us to see 
to know and learn more and more clearly when we're off balance in the ways that we engage and use our energy in our life as a whole. With the blossoming of more maturity within our practice, we begin to find ourselves connecting with more wholesome and skillful ways of being, doing, and relating, which brings a deeper sense of balance and a deeper sense of well-being into our life. Consequently, we find that in fact, we have more energy and more time available for our life to more clearly, directly, and consistently be our practice. Simplicity inwardly and outwardly. This becomes a great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey towards awakening. And of course, all of the conditions, all of the relationships in our lives are really wonderful mirrors for our practice. The joys and the irritations, the annoyances and the delights, the frustrations and the satisfactions, the pleasant and the unpleasant, the likes and the dislikes, all that we experience in retreat and in life outside of retreat. A woman who sat a retreat that I that I, I taught in Israel quite a number of years ago now, who had long before I met her, lived in a spiritual community in France that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff, told uh, me a story that was really a wonderful mirror of a particular and difficult situation in this community being the perfect practice. She said that in this community in France where she lived, there was an old man who was very difficult. He was a very difficult, irascible fellow. He was quite messy and argumentative. She said he wouldn't cooperate, he wouldn't help with things and he basically didn't get along with the others, other people that lived in the community. She said that no one liked him very much. And it seemed that he also didn't like many of the people that lived in the community either. He tried to stay in the community for a while, but it was really difficult for him as well as of course, for the other people there too. So difficult that he finally left and he went to Paris. He couldn't stand it anymore. Gurdjieff, in fact, then followed him to Paris and tried to convince this man to return to the community. But the man said, no, it was just, just too hard to be there. He said he couldn't do it. Well, Gurdjieff offered him some, a monthly stipend to come back to this community, which the man actually couldn't refuse because he was a very poor person. And so he did return. And when he arrived, everyone in the community was kind of aghast. And they were even more aghast when they found out that this man was being paid to be there because they themselves actually had to pay to live in this community. They were very upset. So Gurdjieff called a meeting and he listened to everyone's complaints. And then he laughed, this woman told me. And he said this, she said, he said, the man, this man is yeast 
for your bread. Without him, you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, the heart of unconditional kindness and compassion. That's why you pay me and I pay him. The conditions of our lives and the people in our lives are all part of our practice. They're yeast for our bread, yeast for the purification of our heart and mind, yeast for our awakening. There's one teaching among the 84,000 that the Buddha is said to have offered during his lifetime, where the Buddha uses the metaphor of a mother who has four sons for the development and the flowering of unconditional loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. Each of the sons, because of his particular age and particular personality and particular karmic manifestations, calls forth from the mother one of these divine abidings. Well, I only have three sons, but they have certainly managed to uh, be some of my strongest teachers in many, many ways over the years. Our closest people can often be some of our best teachers, just simply through them being who they are, what they need from us, and what they show us and what they give us. So an example, my two oldest sons, who will be 58 this year, are identical twins. They show me, teach me really, a relationship that is rare. They're very, very close friends. And although when they were little boys, they would sometimes fight with each other as children do. Over all of these years, they've never talked about each other or to each other in negative or judgmental ways. No matter what one or the other is feeling, no matter what one or the other has done or not done, and no matter how the other's life is going. And they do lead quite different lives from each other in many ways. And they're not each other's keeper, meaning they're respectful of each other and they are not codependent with each other. I think this is really quite a rare relationship. Sometimes I'm in awe of it and I always learn from it. And some words from the Buddha. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. So ending this reflection now with two poems. The first comes from Joy Harjo, 
who was the first Native American woman to have the honor of being our United States Poet Laureate. And this is her Eagle poem. To pray, open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more. There is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like Eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, river circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you. We see ourselves and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within the true circle of motion. Like eagle rounding out the morning inside us, we pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. And now some words of advice from wandering Japanese poet, Nanao Sakaki. If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. And closing this morning's end of retreat reflection with an excerpt called Bowing. And this comes from the writer and naturalist, Barry Lopez, from his book called Arctic Dreams. Gulchous, glaucious gulls fly over. In the shore lead our phalaropes with their twig-like legs. In the distance, I can see flocks of old squaw against the sky and a few cormorants, a patch of shadow that could be several thousand crested auklets are too far away to know. Out there are whales I have seen, six or eight gray whales as I walk this evening and the ice pale as the dove-colored sky. The wind raises the surface of the water, wake of a seal in the shore lead, gone now. I bowed, I bowed to what knows no deliberating legislature or parliament, no religion, no competing theories of economics, an expression of allegiance with the mystery of life. 
I looked out over the Bering Sea and brought my hands folded to the breast of my parka and bowed from the waist deeply toward the north. That great spirit, straight, excuse me, that great straight filled with life, the ice and the water. I held the bow to the pale sulfur sky at the northern rim of the earth. I held the bow until my back ached and my mind was emptied of its categories and designs, its plans and speculations. I bow before the simple evidence of the moment in my life in a tangible place on the earth that was beautiful. When I stood, I thought I glimpsed my own desire. The landscape and the animals were like something found at the end of a dream. The edges of the real landscape became one with the edges of something I had dreamed. But what I had dreamed was only a pattern, some beautiful pattern of light. The continuous work of the imagination, I thought, to bring what is actual together with what is dreamed is an expression of human evolution. The conscious desire is to achieve a state, even momentarily, that like light is unbounded, nurturing, suffused with wisdom and creation, a state in which one has absorbed the very darkness, which before was the perpetual sign of defeat. Whatever that world is, it lies ahead but its outline, its intimation is clear in the landscape. And upon this, one can actually hope we will find our way. I bowed again, deeply toward the north and turned south to retrace my steps over the dark cobbles to the home where I was staying. I was full of appreciation for all that I had seen. And now let's sit silently together. For about 20 minutes.
all of the wholesome energies and the fruits that have manifested through this retreat serve with immeasurable impartiality, without bias, without prejudice, towards the welfare, the happiness, and the awakening of all beings everywhere. So see you soon again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.